Swedenborg claims to have been able to speak to the spirits of the earliest humans on Earth. What did he learn? We explore what these people were like and how much humanity has changed since, right now on the NCE Spotlight, your home for fresh insights from the ongoing translation of the New Century edition of Swedenborg's Theological Works. Knock, knock. Dr. Jonathan Rose, are you in? Hey, I'm here. Who is it? Hey, as always, it's Chelsea, and I've got Curtis with me today. Hey, Dr. Rose, I'm a huge fan. Hey, good to see you. Yes, he's a huge fan, so just let me know if he goes a little too strong, and we'll, I'll, I'll give him a word. But Can we get a <laughs> selfie together, please? Okay, at the end, Curtis, at the end. So we are thrilled to be back in your office, as always, to get to hear what things you've come across in your ongoing editing work of the multi-volume magnum opus, Secrets of Heaven of Swedenborg's. And so what do you have for us this week? Well, uh, I want to set this up a little bit because I've got three passages on a given topic. And... um, I don't know if you see things the same way I do, but I seem to bump into a lot of shows, whether they're documentaries or sci-fi or various different things, that um, suggest that people in ancient times were um, simplistic, maybe a little stupid, uh, driven by very worldly and external concerns, trying to eat and so on. and. And um, uh, this is so opposite to what Swedenborg has to say. Mm -hmm. So I found three passages on the subject of the ancients and how they contrast with the moderns. And this is from Secrets of Heaven, Volume 4. So this is number 3419. I just want to say to those of us in our audience who may be modern, yes. who knows how flattering these takes are going to be. That's right. right. Well, I guess also I'll jump in to say that, so I don't know if it'll come out in what Swedenborg says with what you're about to quote, but the whole question of like, how does Swedenborg know? You know, like I guess through his spiritual experiences primarily, but he's writing also from this knowledge as he's studying the Bible, like you say, you're doing in Secrets of Heaven, Volume 4. And so I don't know if you have anything to say about that, that he was given this access to ancient societies. That's a great point, that as he, as his spiritual eyes were opened, as he puts it sometimes, or had a spiritual awakening, he was put in touch with um, angels, some of whom lived on this planet. You may be aware of his concept that angels are all people who used to live on this or some other planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no separately created race up there. And the, some of the people he's encountering are the people from thousands and thousands of years ago on this planet. Mm -hmm. And he's able to talk with them at some length and, and find out what they think about things. So he writes here, the truth known to the ancients has been obliterated today, so much so that hardly anyone knows it existed or that it could have been different from the kind now taught. Mm -hmm. 
I want to hit pause and just say I, I love that because we have a tendency to think that anything other than us, we're probably better than them or it's about the same. Yes, yes. Uh, we don't, we don't, I don't know, we don't instinctively think that, that maybe they were smarter. Well, certainly the, there's nothing that they had that was of any consequence that's a lot better than what we have. Because look, we, we have so many more buildings and so much more food. And what could they have known? <laughs> I know. That we don't know. I know. What, what would that be? So he goes on about their um, knowledge. Um, it was entirely different. They had representative images and symbols that stood for the heavenly and spiritual qualities of the Lord's kingdom, and so for the Lord himself. People who understood them were called sages, and sage they were because they could talk with spirits and angels. Hmm. Angelic speech is incomprehensible to humankind because it is spiritual and heavenly. And when it filters down to people in the earthly realm, I like that language, it expresses itself in the kind of representations and symbols that appear in the Word, meaning the Bible, interestingly. Mm -hmm. You know, stories about sheep and grapes and so on. He continues, that's why the Word is a sacred volume. It's the only way anything divine can be presented to an earthly person and retain its full correspondence. Wow, that's awesome. That was like a ringer at the end there <laughs> about the full correspondence. Right. Understanding those levels. You would think there would be multiple different ways. And I think uh, some people think, well, why doesn't God just sort of come out and say what he's thinking, you know, <laughs> instead of telling you stories about Jacob and or something. But... Uh, Swedenborg saying, no, this is, this is how you have to do it. If you want to reach an earthly person with this divine information, you've mm. got to come down this way. And now we've drifted so far that we don't even know <laughs> that inner content exists anymore. So a strange analogy that came to my mind is when animals get isolated on islands, there's something called island gigantism Gi gigantism I guess is how you'd say oh, it so yeah. certain species that, that get on these islands they are suddenly free of the predators everything that wanted to eat them on the big continents so they're able to get really big hmm. because there's no predators around to eat them hmm. and, they're, and they don't need to move very fast they, they're kind of slow and then um, but they into all all appearances they're doing so much better than their counterparts back on the continent because they, they got so much bigger. But when, for example, humans show up on that island and introduce feral rats and things, these animals have no defenses against that and they can't handle it. Mm. So I sort mm. of think about our, our modern civilization as kind of like an island giant that we got totally separated from <laughs> understanding the importance of the spiritual world and that that's even a branch of study and that it even has any meaningful... Um, consequences to whether we know it exists or not. So we got really good. We got really big at the worldly stuff right in front of us. We got really good at technology. We got really good at surviving and multiplying physically, but it, it would probably just lack these very basic things that our, our smaller, if you will, ancestors had really well developed. Mm. That's so awesome. That's such a great 
analogy to make and such a fun way to think about it. I love that. Yeah, they're kind of weak. We, we are kind of weak and slow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because we haven't had that challenge for a while. How, how could it be that there's anything that anything that's important that we don't know, and it seems like we're just winning at everything <laughs> as as modern humans, but. I like the the island analogy because it shows that oh well we the the thing that we're not prepared for isn't present because each one of us individually we, we don't we don't know the spiritual world is there so its effects and things we don't really understand or experience until we die and then we're we're out into a new phase um, so you you couldn't tell you couldn't tell it without that there that oh you're lacking something important yeah mm. and I love. Um just that thought that the sages it's not just that they had the knowledge but they had that communication with angels that that is how they also understood the symbols i feel like it wasn't it's only through our conversations through contemplating these different quotes that you've brought to the podcast that i am appreciating in a new way how there's this connection with understanding the representative nature of things around us and how that is almost one and the same with communicating with angels somehow Swedenborg mm. is saying you know that those two right. go hand in hand and that's just wild to think about and so uh but yeah it's so cool well that's a real that's a real technology that's a real product that they had that we don't have if they've got this language that can reliably produce connection <laughs> with angels i mean which do you want do you want right. twitter or do you want that? Like I, I, that's uh, the people would trade it. People would trade for that. That's right. This dovetails well with the next uh, passage that I have, which is a little shorter, from thirty-four, thirty-two. This evidence shows how wisdom receded with the passage of time, mm -hmm. from the inmost depths to the outermost surface. Humankind removed itself. Now this was an achievement. Humankind removed itself <laughs> from heaven and finally sank all the way down to the dust of the earth where it now places its wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes along with what you were saying about how, and I feel like we're kind of coming out of that now, but that there was for so long this sense that, of course, we're the smartest, you know, the biggest and the strongest and the smartest of, you know, human civilization going back, but that as more research is is undergoing and then they're making these discoveries about ancient civilizations it's uh we're having to change our whole idea around that you know of how much more sophisticated these um ancient communities were and i just love that that maybe we're gaining a little bit more of that perspective that could even maybe even has a chance of connecting us back into the spiritual insights that those ancient communities had too and moral moral sophistication you, you do think oh primitive people were as Jonathan was mentioning they were impulsive and whenever people try to analyze the human mind they say well you know your fight or flight goes back to when you were on the savannah and you're just trying to run from a lion <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you just think of oh yeah that people must have you know that that modern things like notions of justice and fairness and rightness and being able to come you know address morally complex issues we must be more advanced at that but maybe not maybe people used to have a really exquisite sense of how to think rightly about people and about 
navigating life. It could be that mm. that, that was a very advanced thing. Yeah, it, it's just kind of a shocker to the, the way he uses the dust of the earth there. <laughs> yes. It is pretty shocking. That's where our wisdom is now. Yes. <laughs> and in this final quotation, he gives kind of another analogy example. He talks about, now, again, this is he's talking about his own times. He wasn't, a, you know, on this earth now when mm-hmm. we are. And I do think, as you were saying, Chelsea, things have turned around or, or start to head in a more positive direction. But in his time, there was such a lot of philosophy that if you were to talk about a subject, you had to, first of all, debate whether it existed or not and whether it is as it is described. Okay. You know, those, those were two major questions of uh, debate. So Swedenborg says this in number 3428. Most disputes today go no further, as is recognized, but as long as the debate bogs down over whether a thing exists and whether it is as claimed, mm. the participants cannot advance into any measure of wisdom. The topic under discussion involves countless issues they can never see until they acknowledge the thing itself, because till then they know nothing about any of them. I'll hit pause and say somewhere surrounding this passage, I can't remember if it was before or afterward, Swedenborg talks about the example of an inner meaning to Scripture. If all you ask is, is there one? You're never Mm -hmm. exploring all the complexity of how it works and what is it and what is it telling us and all that. You're just stuck on, you know, does it exist? He continues, Modern scholarship hardly ventures beyond the bounds of those questions whether a thing exists, and whether it is as claimed. So when it comes to understanding truth, modern scholars stand outside a locked door. Yes, what was that about modern times? It's true. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not the way it is, I'd say, yeah, anymore on a lot of things, but that's the way it is on the afterlife. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. Modern discourse about the afterlife, it's... There's no, there are a couple of programs at isolated universities where they're trying to study, you know, consciousness and its survival after death, but mostly it's all, well, is there really life after death or not? Is, is there really or not? And, and what would constitute proof? And we can't, all the firsthand experiences of it, we, we can't take, we don't have any way to measure those or anything. So we, we're just sitting here and, and, trying to wonder if it happens or not. So there's not been any real meaningful pursuit. Yeah, the NDE would be another example like that, wouldn't it? Where it's it's pretty vigorously debated whether people are actually having these experiences and is anything going on. And It's a tunnel. The tunnel is oxygen deprivation. Right. Because it's bright at the edges and... Yeah and dark or or the reverse and that's what <laughs> totally discounting like the the obvious difference between the, the lived experience of like a fuzzy your brain is shutting off versus what the people are reporting yeah. but but because it's super uncool to say well i think there there might be something non-physical i think there really might be something religious sounding that's about where it where the debate can go and it just makes me think 
you know, sort of bringing it to our own personal spiritual lives. I feel like Swedenborg is getting on such an important point that we, that I feel like that's so true and important as he's saying it. Uh, and he's just talking about in terms of knowledge, but I feel like with God's ability to lead us out of our sort of traps of false thinking that we have in our own spiritual lives, we can't, that's a barrier if we are never willing to be like, well, maybe this other thing is possible. You know, like it's just, I'm, I just think of all the times that I feel like, you know, people can talk themselves out of possibility and change or hope, you know, because there are so many reasons why, oh no, you know, is, is that thing so or not? It's like, well, I just don't know. I mean, what if this or that, da, da. It's like, you have to be willing to have a first level of like, let's just put other things aside and say, maybe it is possible. Mm. What, and then, and then suddenly I feel like God and heaven can flow in and lead you to, oh yeah, there is this whole other way of looking at my life or my circumstances or whatever. And that suddenly uh, you can be brought to new places in your own spirit that you just couldn't even, weren't even willing to think could exist beforehand. Reminds me of that statement in the Psalms about getting out of the miry pit and getting your feet on solid rock, you know, so yeah. you start to, start to make progress. And um, and there's good correspondences in there in terms of the rock being something solid and true. It's like, okay, let's just take this as a given and explore it, see where it goes. Then you can walk and, on it, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, although those passages are sort of negative about it, the Swedenborg's time period and, and to some extent our own, uh, I think what's positive in there is that, isn't it awesome that Swedenborg was able to tap into, in this direct way, into this ancient wisdom? Yeah. And see the contrast with what was going on. I mean, it must have been quite stunning to him. I know. And I love that application that you started, Chelsea, to individual experiences because I think it's the same dynamic with every moral principle. That if you're, is this really the right way to act or not? If it's something you've come across in, let's say, the word, has this really, if you, you can endlessly stay on the fence about it. So I think this is probably why. Swedenborg says it's important just to confirm and and start acting on it and only then mm -hmm. do you really experience the truth of it yeah and I gotta say when I being familiar with Swedenborg and what he says when you watch shows that are like on you know what is it like neolithic times and things like that or paleolithic whatever those different words <laughs> i feel like it's like this secret uh extra card that we have to play with to be because people wonder about oh i wonder why these people had these certain burial rituals versus this later kind of people and like and i'm i'm wondering like with what swedenborg says of like oh i wonder about what what spiritual communities did those match up with that swedenborg is having this actual access to. So it's amazing. It is a fun extra sort of a light on in the attic while while you're watching the show. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Good food for thought. 
Oh, well, thanks so much, Jonathan. This has been a delight. Let's do it again. And I, yep, just as promised, Curtis, we'll get your selfie right before we go. I hope your heart was uplifted and your mind inspired by this week's NCE Spotlight. Subscribe to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to tap into this stream of fresh insights and join us on our excursions into the historical context of Swedenborg's life and works. All passages quoted in this episode are sneak peeks from upcoming volumes of the New Century Edition translation of Secrets of Heaven. If you've benefited from the work of the Swedenborg Foundation through Off the Left Eye and the New Century Edition, consider supporting us with a donation. We are a nonprofit and depend on the support of our donors. To give, go to swedenborg.com donate. And thank you for listening.